For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the deaths of kings, how some have been deposed, some slain in war. I me, I see the ruin of my house. The tiger now hath seized the gentle hind. Insulting tyranny begins to jut upon the innocent and aweless throne. What is a man? Sure he made us with such large discourse, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused. O oh, my dear father, restoration hang thy medicine on my lips, and let this kiss repair those violent harms that my two sisters have in thy reverence made. I am a king that find thee, and I know, tis not the balm, the scepter and the ball, the sword, the mace, the crown imperial, the throne he sits on, nor the pomp that beats on the high shore of the world. This is the mighty history of the British Empire, a people living on a tiny island in the North Atlantic Ocean, built an empire that circled the earth and brought freedom and education to languishing millions. This empire was blessed by Almighty God and one of his best educated teachers, William Shakespeare. Shakespeare has educated some of the greatest leaders of all time, such as Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill. We shall never surrender. Our troubled world needs a fresh crew of nation-building leaders. Are you ready to step up to the challenge? Welcome to the exciting classroom of Shakespeare's Royal Education with host Dennis Leap. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. And I certainly want to welcome you back to Shakespeare's Royal Education. Now, I have received a plethora of comments and congratulations from so many of you, but I'd, I'd like to read them over the next couple uh, tapings. So, But I do have one today that I think is uh, especially fun, and uh, I just wanted to uh, just tell everybody that, hey, if you have a comment, please send it in. I, I love to get comments. It really helps when I'm preparing these uh, programs. So this is from Benjamin, and that's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to tell you his last name, but uh, hi, Benjamin. <laughs> I'm really happy to get this message. He says, hello, all. And he's writing to everybody that does radio programming for kpcg.fm. He said, this message uh, is primarily for Mr. Leap, but to whom it may concern, I've been listening to all the KPCG programs for a couple of months now, and I really had a bad attitude about Shakespeare, just being honest. <laughs> and so, Benjamin, you're probably not the only one that has a bad attitude about Shakespeare. If you're listening to the news, uh, all the woke people in the world want to destroy everything Shakespeare's ever written uh, and just wipe it off the, the map so that it's like he never even existed. But I know you don't have that deep of a hate for for Shakespeare. He says, I never really liked it, mainly because I couldn't really understand it. And uh, also, as Mr. Leap has mentioned, it can be somewhat intellectually vain depending on the circumstances. However, after a few episodes of JBL and knowing Mr. Flurry's viewpoint on Shakespeare, I decided to give the Shakespeare Royal Education a listen. I honestly hated it at first from my preconceived notions, but actually took the steps to pray about it 
and to have an open mind. Well, it turns out I've had a change of heart, and having listened to the most recent episode, which breaks down the synopsis of King Lear, and it is not the down altered-down version, I became committed to giving it a read. Mr. Lieb's presentation and enthusiasm was contagious, so I stopped at Barnes & Noble and found a copy pictured below. He even sent a picture of the book he got. And hope it is an accurate version. It portends to be based on the text of the first folio of 1623, providing a text as close as possible to the play Shakespeare wrote. Sorry, I'm kind of rushing rushing here today. I got into the studio just a little bit late, and uh, I have such a wonderful assistant. I don't want him to be mad at me. Say hi, Dan. Hi. <laughs> Glad to have Dan here with me. Anyway, uh, Ben, I'll just tell you, if you got the first folio of 1623, you probably got the good version, so I wouldn't worry about it. It says, uh, it has for every line or uh, for dummies translation help on the opposite page. So, so that's not a bad thing. I mean, you're not a dummy. And uh, sometimes I look at those translations before I give a radio program so to make sure I understand what's being said. He said, uh, these translations and definitions of Old English are extremely helpful for this dummy. Now, one thing I want to say, Benjamin, is that Shakespeare did not write in Old English. It's a 16th century English. And if you have a King James Bible, it's the same English. You know, the word pate means your skull. And there is, uh, if you look in the King James Bible, even David wrote a poem and used the word pate. And so it just means your skull. And sometimes we have tough skulls that need to be racked around a little bit. But anyway, he says, the best part of this little story is that, that it was listed at eleven ninety nine, but rang up at only $5. A steal. And a blessing, I presume. Just wanted to share this for fun and also to encourage all of you at the radio station. I'm a regular listener of all the programs. And I wanted to encourage you all that you're doing a wonderfully fine job out there. Besides Mr. Lee's programming, I really appreciate the Trumpet Hour, Live by Every Word, the Trumpet Bookshelf, Behind the Work, The Sun Also Rises, and spent the entire day Thursday at work catching up on Mr. V. Hill's Repeat Rewind series on the first four episodes about Charlemagne. And he said, oh, and I almost forgot to mention the music series by Mr. Malone. So uh, I'll say thank you for all of us, Ben. Thank you for writing in. And uh, please keep listening, and please keep letting us know what you think. He goes on to say, I'm very grateful that this exists in the church and is being shared all around the world. Keep it up, everyone. You're doing great. And so uh, we'll just say thank you to Ben. And then uh, I'll be giving you a few more as we do some more programming. All right. So let me just uh, talk about where we <laughs> where we were the last time. I'm, we're going to get back into King Lear today, but actually we're going to get into the play itself. Now, I went back in my notes to find out when I actually wrote the notes for the last time we taped King Lear, and it was almost two years ago when I wrote it. So uh, maybe not two years, maybe just a good solid year. The program titled today is Edmund Traps, Edgar, and Goneril Spurns Lear. On my first King Lear podcast, I titled it Scheming Sisters and Bitter Brother. 
And what I what I think would be good for all of you that are listening, maybe some of you have listened in the past, it would probably be good to go back and listen to that program. And again, it's up on the schedule. It's up on, if you get into the the radio library on the trumpet.com, you can find that. It, it's right there. Scheming Sisters and Bitter Brother. And so I, I just think it'd be good for you to go back and listen to it. But I'll, I'll just give you a little bit of a synopsis today before we get into what we're going to discuss today. So in that podcast, Scheming Sisters and Bitter Brother, what I did is I discussed the final lines of Act one, scene one. And then I began discussing act one, scene two. Now, we did finish act one, scene one, with Goneril and Regan alone on stage. And uh, that is a very necessary scene for you to understand what's really going on with King Lear and the daughters. Essentially, what they were discussing is how they were going to break their father's authority over them. Uh, I think I'm going to go back and just give you a little bit more, just to bring you up to date again on on King Lear, what's going on with them. But it's really kind of a shocking kind of a scene where here Lear has just given his daughters great pieces of land. He's given them great authority. Actually gave their husbands royal authority. He gave them what they call coronets or smaller crowns. And, And yet... They want to totally, it's like separate themselves from him. They don't want any more of his authority. And of course, if we know the Ten Commandments the way we should, and we know the Fifth Commandment is, you know, to respect your mother and your father, it doesn't matter how old you get as a mother or a father, your children should still respect you. And uh, now, obviously, the older we get, sometimes uh, the brain gets a little foggy and we forget things and, you know, do things like that. But still, there should be a, a certain measure of respect. And, of course, Shakespeare, I think, in this whole play is showing what can happen inside families if the father isn't right. And, of course, uh, we'll talk about a little bit more about that as we go even through this program. But essentially, Shakespeare uh, ends that scene with just the two of them on stage. And again, they're already scheming. Their father just gave them all this. Now they're scheming how they can get, get him out of their life. And uh, it's, really, it's really quite sad. Now, we also, uh, on that program, and I did listen to the program, by the way, uh, yesterday and this morning, with uh, Act 1, Scene 2, I discussed... Edmund's bitter soliloquy revealing the resentment over being called illegitimate. And it's not just that he's called illegitimate, he's also totally bitter over being called the bastard. If you uh, if you even want to, it might be good for you to go back and just reread some of those first scenes in the play where, where Gloucester just has no respect for his illegitimate son when he's talking with Kent and he, he uh, talks about him as the bastard and he talks about kind of like his fling with his mother and it was all very insulting. You could see why would he even talk about that with Kent? Uh, a- anyway, by the time we get to scene two of act one, we see Edmund's just uh, his resentment over being called a bastard. Now, one of the things that he's really upset about is he does have a legitimate brother, and they're only like maybe three months apart. They're they're very close in age, and uh, one of the things he's he's uh, absolutely upset about is 
Edgar has these rights of inheritance. So his father is getting older. Gloucester's getting older. King Lear is getting older. And uh, the thing is, Edmund knows that Edgar is going to inherit the whole estate. He's going to inherit all the wealth. And at that time in England, because he was considered a bastard son, he had no rights in the inheritance. And uh, he's pretty upset about that. And so, so essentially what Edmund does is he has a scheme where he's going to try and steal the inheritance from his brother. And, uh, of course, he has to overwork his father to get that done. It's really a very, very sad scene. So what I want to do is I want to get into Act 1, Scene 2 today. But I thought maybe it would be good if I just do kind of a short reading of the manipulation uh, that Edmund so skillfully weaves against his father and brother. And it's really great writing. And uh, I think it's something that it's really good to understand if you're going to understand this whole play. And I want to remember now that I'm using the Pelican Shakespeare. And over the, the previous podcast, I told you that I would be giving you the page numbers and I would also give you the act number and the scene number. And you can find those at the top of the page of the Pelican. And the, the act number and scene number is on the left side of the page. The page number is on the right side of the page. So if you have your Pelican out there in front of you, if I say act one, scene two, then you know to look to the left of your page. And if I tell you to page 17, you should look to the right of the page. And they're, they're always at the top of the page. And then there's notes of explanation at the bottom of every page. And uh, that's why I like this pelican issue is that when you get run into a, an unusual word or an unusual phrase, usually they'll be able to help you understand it. So what I want to do is let's look at some of this bitterness over his illegitimate status. Let's go to page 16. And, of course, we'll be at Act 1, Scene 2, which is actually, uh, it starts at the middle of page 15, but um, we don't have to read all of that. Let's start reading at line 13. He says, uh, Then doth with a dull, stale, tired bed go to the creating a whole tribe of fops. Gratween asleep and awake, well then, legitimate Edgar, I must have your land. And so essentially what he's doing in those first few lines, he's referring to, you know, his father's where he strays even from his marriage. And he's with these, uh, uh, well, we could call them strumpets or prostitutes. And he says that even in Gloucester's regular marriage, it doesn't matter how many children he has, there's still a tribe of fops. And so you can see his bitterness immediately. But then he, he goes and he really reveals what he's thinking. He says, well then, legitimate Edgar, this is line 16, I must have your land. And so he, he's saying, look, I'm not going to just be bitter. I'm going to do something about it, and I'm going to take this from my brother. If we look at Edgar, Edgar would not even suspect this is even happening. And, uh, of course, we could look at it because Edgar may be, may be seen as the favorite, but Gloucester... Glosser just assures everybody that he doesn't have a favorite, that he loves both sons equally. And so uh, we may have to really look at that deeply to, to see if that's really true. 
he says, our father's love is to the bastard Edmund as to the legitimate, fine word, legitimate. So, so this is what, starting with line 17, that's what Edmund is saying is, look, my father always tells us that, that he loves me as much as he loves the legitimate. And he said, fine word, legitimate. Well, my legitimate, if this letter speed and my invention thrive, Edmund the base, excuse me, Edmund the base shall top the legitimate. I grow, I prosper. Now God stand up for bastards. And so essentially what he's doing here is he's scheming on how to turn his father away from Edgar. And essentially what he's done is he's drafted this letter that uh, he makes it look like his brother Edgar has written this letter, and it's a it, it's a foul letter about Gloucester. It's supposedly this is how uh, Edgar really feels about his father. None of it is true. Edmund knows he can't legally inherit his father's estate, even if his brother dies. He can't because of the way it is, uh, the laws are in England. So he sets up this plan to steal it. And uh, the letter is the invention to initiate his scheme. And so he's talking about it there. Now, essentially what's happened with this scene, and, and again, if you ever had a chance to see the Royal Shakespeare Company film on King Lear, and you can uh, you could look at it online. I know I have a copy of it that I bought um, when I was in England. And uh, it would probably really help you even understand it even better. But essentially right now is if you're if you're reading your page 16 uh, Gloucester enters the scene and and essentially what we have to understand what Gloucester has just been through is what we saw in act 1 when King Lear is just angry and he's upset and he he wants his daughters to tell him how much they love him and his oldest two daughters oh they just swoon they just tell him how much they love him and and they love him more than they love their husbands so he gives uh, he gives them really good portions of land, and then he gives their husbands uh, these coronets or these small crowns, and then his daughter Cordelia, who who the other two sisters know he loves her best, she says, "I'm not gonna." She tells him basically, "Well, you know how much I love you. I love you as I ought to love you. I owe you my love. You're my father," and she won't really go into all this, you know lie she won't lie to him and he banishes her <laughs> so he makes rash decisions but Gloucester has seen all this and of course one of his uh, assistants goes to the king and tells him it's crazy that you're banishing your daughter Cordelia why would you banish her he said you know she loves you and of course then he gets banished for sticking up for Cordelia and so with Gloucester he's coming home He's seen all this. He can't understand it. And he starts saying, this is line 23, page 16, line 23. Kent banished thus, and France in collar parted. And so here the king of France was there, and uh, the Duke of Burgundy, they were both vying for Cordelia's hand in marriage. And when uh, Lear banishes her and takes her dowry away, the, the Duke of Burgundy says, well, I don't want her. <laughs> I don't want her anymore. And then the king of France, he says, well, I'll take her. He said her character is worth more than a dowry. But then the way she's treated, here Kent, uh, Gloucester says in line 23, Kent is banished thus, 
and France in collar parted. So, so the king of France was absolutely went berserk when he saw what Lear did. And he took uh, Cordelia to his wife. She became the queen of England. And he says, And the king gone tonight, prescribed his power, confined to exhibition, all this done upon the gad, or it's or done so suddenly? It's like, did he think this through? And he says, uh, Edmund, how now? What news? Upon the gad, that's an old English, not, I shouldn't say old English, let's say 16th century Shakespearean English. It just means so suddenly. Why would you make a decision so suddenly? And Edmund says, so please your lordship, none. And Gloucester says, well, why so earnestly seek you to put up that letter? And Edmund says, I know no news, my lord. He says, what paper were you reading? Nothing, my lord. He says, no, what needed then that terrible dispatch of it into your pocket? The quality of nothing has not such need to hide itself. Let's see. Come, if it be nothing, I shall not need spectacles. And so Edmund said, no, I don't want to read this letter. But actually, everybody out there listening, and if you're reading the play, he actually wants Gloucester to read the letter. <laughs> and so the more he takes it away, you know, makes it more interesting. And, uh, you know, this guy is Satan incarnate. <laughs> He's like the Antiochus. He's scheming. And the, one of the things that you have to learn about Gloucester as you go through the play is he's just absolutely credulous. He'll believe anything without proof. And here he's got a bastard son who's, by the way, been gone for nine years, comes back and says he's reading a letter, and he's reading a letter from his brother, and he believes it. He doesn't question it. He just believes it. And so he's very credulous. Edmund says, I beseech you, sir, pardon me, it's a letter from my brother that I have not all over-read, and for so much as I have pursued, I find it not fit for your overlooking. <laughs> that's the bait, man. That's, that's the sweet part that you're going to want to eat. And Glosser just says to him, give me the letter, sir. So Edmund says, I shall offend either to detain or to give it. So he said, look, I'm in an impossible situation. I, I either... If I don't give it, I'm in trouble. If I give it, I'm in trouble. So I guess I just better give it to him. And so it's really interesting. Gloucester says, let's see, let's see. I hope for my brother's justification he wrote this, but as an essay or taste of my virtue. Now, if you really, you can't read over that really quickly. You've got to analyze that, sit down and think about that. What he's saying is, this letter isn't really for you. This letter was for me from my brother, and it's an essay or a taste of my virtue. In other words, he wrote this to test me, to see what I would think. And if you know anything about the uh, play Othello, I mean, Edmund is just like Iago. <laughs> He's just the same character. So now Gloucester reads the letter. He says, this policy and reverence of age makes the world bitter to the best of our times, keeps our fortunes from us till our oldness cannot relish them. I begin to find an idle and fond bondage in the oppression of age tyranny, who sways not as he hath power, but as it is suffered. Come to me, that of this I may speak more. If our father would sleep till I waked him, you should enjoy half his revenue forever and live the beloved of your brother, Edgar. So the way the letter reads, it looks like 
and this is Edgar saying to Edmund, hey, come on, dad's getting older. Uh, you know, he's old enough where he should really just let us take over the estate, let us manage the wealth, and then when he dies, I'll make sure you get half. That's essentially what he's doing. And uh, it's a lie. And then uh, it goes on, hmm, conspiracy. Sleep till I waked him? You should enjoy half his revenue. My son Edgar? This is Gloucester. And he said, had he had a hand to write this? A hardened brain to breed it in? When came you to this? Who brought it? And then Edmund says, it was not brought me, my lord. There's the cunning of it. I found it thrown in the casement of my closet. You know the character be your brother's. In other words, that's the, the uh, handwriting. He says, the handwriting is your brother's. And he said, if the matter were good, my lord, I'd swear it were his. But in respect of that, I would fain think it is it were not. So in other words, he says, well, if the matter were different, I could say yes. But, you know, this is a pretty bad letter, dad. And he says, I don't think he did write it. And then Glosser says, it is his. What Edmund has done, he's probably got some of his brother's letters, and he just kept tracing and tracing and tracing until he could write his signature. And so that's that's what happened. Edmund said, it is his hand, my lord, but I hope his heart is not in the contents. So it's a totally false letter, and uh, you can see where... Shakespeare is, is showing us that Gloucester is just so credulous. He's just going to believe anything. And he, he believes this. And then Gloucester says to him, this is page 18 now, it says, has he never before sounded you in this business? Never, my lord, but I have heard him oft maintain it to be fit that sons at a perfect age and fathers declined, the father should be as ward to the son and the son manage his revenue. And so Gloucester just says, oh, villain, villain. His very opinion in the letter, abhorred villain, unnatural, detested, brutish villain, worse than brutish. Go, sir, uh, seek him, I'll apprend him. Abominable villain, where is he? And so so uh, that doesn't say a lot of good about Gloucester. You know, he should be able to say, look, my son would never write this. This is false. But he believes everything Edmund says. Edmund says, I do not well know, my lord, if if it shall please you to suspend your indignation against my brother till you can derive from him better testimony of his intent. Now, that's exactly what he should be doing. And here, here smarty pants, Edmund, is telling him, well, look, you dope, this is what you should be doing. He said, you should run a certain course where if you violently proceed against him, mistaking his purpose, it would make a great gap in your own honor and shake in pieces the heart of his obedience. I dare pawn down my life for him that he hath writ this to feel my affection to your honor and to no other pretense of danger. And Gloucester says, think you so? If your honor judge me, I will place you where you will hear us confer of this and by an auricular assurance, in other words, by your own ears hearing it, you can uh, have your satisfaction and that without any further delay than this very evening. Gloucester says he cannot be such a monster. And then Edmund, nor is it not sure. And Gloucester says to his father that so tenderly and entirely loves him, heaven and earth, Edmund, seek him out, 
Wind him unto me, I pray you, frame the business after your own wisdom. I would unstate myself to be in due resolution. And Edmund says, I'll seek him, sir, presently, convey the business as I shall find means and acquaint you with all. And so there's the big scene. There's the big scheme. It's now in play, and it's going to affect, have a big impact on the relationship between Gloucester and Edgar. Now, one of the things which we're really going to learn from this play is that uh, all the problems that are going on between the daughters, let's say the daughters uh, of King Lear and uh, King Lear, and then the uh, the problem between Gloucester and his sons, the thing that we have to come to realize, the problem is in them. And I know uh, sometimes... Uh, you know, parents, I, I did some teaching in high school for a while, and uh, some of the parents want to blame the teachers that the reason why their children are not doing well in school is the teachers. But uh, I used to tell people, no, it's the parents' problem. I do my part, but you have to do your part at home. And so the same thing is true here. Gloucester, he can't see that, that he's done some wrong things. And notice how he responds to all this. This is page 19. Essentially, what Gloucester is blaming uh, his problem, and actually every man's problem, is on the stars and the planets. And, uh, you know, Shakespeare was obviously thinking about this because uh, he had written Julius Caesar around the same time as King Lear and also at the time of Hamlet. Even uh, Cassius, one line in the play is they're talking about the problems they're having with Caesar and even Cassius says, the fault isn't in our stars. <laughs> you know, it's in ourselves. And so, so here's what Gloucester says. And this is really a great section to understand. And it's a great section to think about. And, uh, you know, how many times do even all of us, we want to blame someone else for our problems? He says, these late eclipses in the sun and the moon portend no good to us. Though the wisdom of nature can reason it thus and thus, yet nature finds itself scourged by the sequent effects. Love cools, friendship falls off, brothers divide. In cities mutinies, in countries discord, in palaces treason, and the bond crack twixt sons and father. This villain of mine comes under the prediction. There is son against father. The king falls from bias of nature. There is father against child. We have seen the best of our time, machinations, hollowness, treachery. All ruinous disorders fall us disquietly to our graves. Find out this villain, Edmund. It shall lose thee nothing. Do it carefully. And the noble and true-hearted Kent banished his offense honesty to strange. Now, I don't know about you, but what does that sound like? That whole piece of writing, again, written, what, 1609, I think it was when this play was written. I think it sounds a lot like our society today. <laughs> and the thing is that, that what we teach here at the, the college and what we teach in the Philadelphia Church of God is there is a spirit world out there, and the spirit world has taken over. And if you look at, if you look at the politics today, if you look at the way people treat each other, you can see it all written in these few lines. It's just all right there. Notice what he says. And he says, wow, it's the stars that are doing it. It's the planets. 
the point is, it's invisible demonic beings that are what's doing it. I'll just read it a little bit from the beginning. These late eclipses in the sun and the moon pretend no good to us. Though the wisdom of nature can reason it thus and thus, yet nature finds itself scourged by sequent effects. Love cools, friendship falls off, brothers divide. In cities, mutinies, in countries, discord, in palaces, treason. I mean, do you not think there's been treason in the United States? It's time to wake up. There has been treason. And uh, the literature we produce will tell you that. He says, we have seen the best of our time. And that's really true. We've seen the best of our time in England. We've seen the best of our time in the United States. It's really sad. But the problem is not in the stars. The problem is in us. And uh, that's what I think is so great about this play is that, that Shakespeare was really a deep thinker. And a lot of what he's written really applies to today. And that's why woke people want to get rid of Shakespeare. <laughs> that's why they want to get rid of him, because they don't want to face reality. All right, now Edmund then says, this is his uh, illegitimate son. He supposedly has respect for his father, but after hearing him say this, this is what Edmund says, this is the excellent foppery of the world that when we are sick in fortune, Often the surfeits of our own behavior, we make guilty all of our disasters, the sun, the moon, and stars, as if we were villains on necessity, fools by heavenly compulsion, knaves, thieves, and treachers, by spherical predominance, drunkards, liars, and adulterers, by an enforced obedience of planetary influence. <laughs> and he said, yeah, the drunkards, the liars, the thieves, the prostitutes, you know, it's, it's the planets made us do this. It's just all the planets' fault. And uh, it's not true. It's, the problems are in us. It says, and all that we are evil in by a divine thrusting on, an admirable invasion of whoremaster man to lay his uh, goatish disposition on the charge of a star, my father compounded with my mother under the dragon's tail, and my nativity was under Ursa Major. Now, in some ways, that's really sad, but it's actually funny. <laughs> he said, so, okay, I'm here because uh, my father actually had an affair with his mother, and it was under the dragon's tail, and then he was uh, born under Ursa Major. And so he said, so that's, that follows that I am rough and lecherous. I should have been that I am and had the maidenless star in the firmament twinkled on my bastardizing. <laughs> so so he sees how silly it all is. But, uh, you know, as we go through this, you'll find out that, that now when he meets his brother, uh, he's going to pretend that he's really been studying the stars and that maybe, uh, maybe that's really affecting things. And so uh, Edgar now enters the picture this is where I, I would think we'd have to say that uh, Edmund now traps his brother. And the title of this uh, podcast is, I'll, I'll just give it to you, Edmund Traps Edgar and Goneril Spurs King Lear. And that's his daughter spurns him. So Edgar comes in, and uh, if you see a good play, they're going to show you that Edgar is, he really is kind of a spoiled firstborn. And uh, he comes into the, the scene with Edmund, and he's playing soccer with a bunch of his friends. He doesn't come across as, a, I'd say, a really respectful firstborn. 
And, uh, of course, then you can see how much Edmund despises him. So Edgar comes on the scene, and this is what uh, Edmund says. He says, and Patty comes like a catastrophe of the old comedy. <laughs> so, so he sees his legitimate brother as a catastrophe. It's like a comedy. He says, my cue is villainous melancholy with the side like Tom of Bedlam. Oh, these eclipses do portend these divisions. Fasolami. So he's saying, he's imitating now what his father is saying. He says, look, here's Edgar. He's like a, a comedy. You know, he, he's out there playing games. And then he goes, oh, these eclipses do portend these divisions. So uh, he's he's imitating his father and really mocking Gloucester there. How now, Brother Evan, what serious contemplation are you in? <laughs> so uh, Edgar's a kind of a smart aleck there. And uh, it's really a, it's a subtle put down. Out of four brothers, I was number three. And the two older brothers, they could, they could be kind of sarcastic with us. Uh, he says, um, Evan is saying, I am thinking, brother, of a prediction I read this other day. What should follow these eclipses? And Edgar says, do you busy yourself with that? And he said, look, I'm not into studying astronomy. He said, are you into that? And he says, I promise you the effects he writes of succeed unhappily as of your unnaturalness between the child and the parent, death, dearth, dissolutions of ancient amenities, divisions in state, menaces, maledictions against king and nobles, needless diffidences, banishment of friends, dissipation of cohorts, nuptial breaches, and I know not what. So, so, so here Edmund is acting He's, he's almost repeating exactly what Gloucester was saying. And he said, well, yeah, I'm studying all this. Meanwhile, he's making fun of his father. He calls him a fop, basically. Edgar says to him, how long have you been a secretary astronomical? Now, that is 16th century English. It really is, basically, how long have you been studying astronomy? Or the astrological, I should say. Edmund says, come, come, when, when saw you my father last? So Edmund is now switching the whole situation, turning that off. He says, hey, when did you see your dad last? He said, the night gone by. He spake you with him? He says, yeah, two hours together. He said, parted you in good terms? Found you no displeasure in him by word or countenance? He says, none at all. He says, was, was your dad upset with you? No. He says, bethink yourself wherein you may have offended him. And at my entreaty, forbear his presence at all some little time, hath qualified the heat of his displeasure, which at this instant so rageth in him that with the mistress of your person it would scarcely allay. And then Edgar says, some villain hath done me wrong. Uh, essentially what Edmund says is, look, your dad's really upset with you. You better stay away from him. Uh, he's really hot. He's really angry. Uh, it could be uh, you know, dangerous to your person. And he said, uh, just better be careful. Just stay away until things cool down. And then Edgar says, some villain has done me wrong. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you're standing there, you're talking to him. And so, so that's what's really hard. Edmund says, that's my fear. I pray you have a continent forbearance till the speed of his rage goes slower. And as I say, retire with me to my lodging from whence I will fitly bring you to hear my Lord speak. Pray you go. Here's my key. If you do stir abroad, go armed. Now. That's that's lightning. He said, look, here's the key to my, my house. 
here's the key to my room. Go in my room, hide out. But if you feel like you have to go out somewhere, make sure you take a sword. Make sure you go armed because you're in danger. And he said, armed? Brother? Brother, I advise you to do the best. Go armed. I am no honest man if there be any good meaning towards you. I have told you what I have seen and heard, but faintly nothing like the image and horror of it. Pray you away. He said, look, I tried to explain this clearly enough without scaring you. I tried not to make it sound real horrible, but listen to me. Get armed. <laughs> so so uh, then Edgar says, shall I hear from you anon, or shall I hear from you shortly? And Edmund says, I do serve you in this business. Now, isn't that amazing? I do serve you. I'm, like, I'm, serv- I'm just your servant. And then look, look at what he says. A credulous father and a brother noble whose nature is so far from doing harms that he suspects none on whose foolish honesty my practices right easy. I see the business. Let me, if not by birth, I have lands by writ. And with me's meat that I can fashion fit. Here he's saying, look, uh, if I can't get this by birth, I'm going to have lands by wit. He set everything in motion. And uh, he even says there that his father is credulous, uh, which means he uh, shows too much uh, of a readiness to believe things that may not be true. All right. So... uh, we're getting close to the end here, but I do want to just uh, slip over to page 22 and remember that we're going to have to probably give a part two to this uh, or maybe uh, cover part of it in the next podcast. But remember, I said that the title is Edmund Traps Edgar, and we just finished that trap. But then the next part of the title is Goneril Spurns Lear. And so I think we can actually get through this in, in 15 minutes. I love Shakespeare so much, I could talk about it all day, so hopefully this isn't boring all of you out there. Anyway, uh, but if you look at Act 1, Scene 3, now you, now we're at Albany's castle. So remember, uh, Goneril is married to Albany. So she's, she's home, and uh, this is Albany's castle. So here's Goneril, and uh, she's talking to her steward, Oswald, and Oswald is just as is evil as everybody else in this situation. He's he's actually having an affair with Goneril, and so we don't learn that right away. But that's actually what's going on. And and Goneril says to her uh, her lover steward, "Did my father strike my gentleman for chiding of his fool?" And so there's a scene. There was a happening where the fool. This is uh, actually King Lear is one of his friends. Uh, he treats him like a son, really. He said, did, did uh, my father strike you when you chided his fool? And he says, I met him. And she says, by day and night, he wrongs me. Every hour he flashes into one gross crime or other that sets all of us at odds. I'll not endure it. His nights grow riotous and himself upbraids us on every trifle. When he returns from hunting, I will not speak with him. Say I am sick. If you come slack of former services, you shall do well. The fault of it, I'll answer. So essentially she's saying, my dad's obnoxious. I don't want him here. And uh, if you really get into it, we all know that part of the agreement, he gives up the crown, 
He gives them power and authority. He still wants the name king, and he wants a hundred knights with him, and he's going to come to their houses. Uh, he's going to alternate one month with Goneril, the other month with his other daughter. And, by the way, not only do they have to feed him, they have to feed the hundred knights. And so they're not happy with that. So then Oswald, they hear these horns. He says, he's coming, madam, I hear him. And Goneril says, put on what weary negligence you please. So she says, don't even serve him. Be negligent to him. You can treat him however you want. He says, you and your fellows, I have it come to question. If he distaste it, let him to my sister. So in other words, she wants him to be upset. And why does she want to be upset? She can pass him off to the sister. And she says, uh, let him to my sister, whose mind and mine I know in that are one. They've already talked. That was the, the last scene I told you. They said, how are they going to break their father's authority? They're just going to irritate him till he just goes away. He says, uh, he says, not to be overruled, idle old man, that still would manage those authorities that he has given away. And so now she's really complaining. Well, look, he, he gave these things away. Now he still wants to have the authority. And that is a problem with Lear. You know, he did give it all up. I mean, essentially, uh, his big mistake in all this is when you're a king, generally you stay a king till you die. But he didn't want to die. And he, he wanted to have some fun. And so he's a little tired of government. And he gave it to his daughters. That was an absolute treachery on his part. He said, uh, old fools are babes. This is what she's saying now. She says, old fools are babes again and must be used with checks as flatteries. So what she's saying is, hey, it's like dad is like a baby. And so we got to spank him and then we got to encourage him. And so now she wants to spank him. <laughs> she wants to get him out of her hair. And uh, Oswald says, well, madam. So in other words, treat him like you want. Be mean to him. We don't care. Goneril says, and let his knights have colder looks among you. She says, okay, give it to the knights too. Now, what she doesn't understand is these knights are soldiers. And uh, Oswald is not a soldier. He's kind of a pansy. And, uh, and she says, yeah, just go fight with them if you have to. You know, make it, make it rough for them. It says, let his knights have colder looks among you. What grows of it, no matter. Advise your fellow so. I would breed from hence occasions, and I shall that I may speak. I'll ride straight to my sister to hold my course, prepare for dinner. So she's saying, okay, I'm going to go write a letter to my sister, uh, Regan, and I want you to take this letter to her. So obviously she's saying, look, I'm dumping him. I want you to take him. All right, so you can see that Goneril is just, she's actually planning a confrontation with her father. She wants Oswald to plan a confrontation with her father. She wants to get rid of him. And so uh, it is really, really interesting there. In many ways, that does satisfy what I wanted to to talk to you about. Now, just to give you uh, maybe a little bit of uh, interest in what's coming up, uh, Act 1, Scene 4, it's a kind of a hopeful scene in the play. Essentially what's happening is Kent, who was um, expelled from the country, uh, he is now put on a disguise. He's changed the, his voice. Uh, he's changed his, his accent. And uh, he's actually going to Albany's castle, and he wants to 
join himself to protect Lear. He wants to uh, become his servant. And I think it's interesting that Kent takes the name Caius. And again, uh, that is a, a Roman name. And so you can see that Shakespeare at the, around this time is also working on Julius Caesar, you know, at the same time, or pretty close to this time. And so Kent says, if this is Act 1, Scene 4, this is Kent speaking. He's actually uh, meeting with Lear at Albany's castle. He says, if but as well I other accents borrow. So he's saying, look, I've disguised myself. I've disguised my voice. But can my speech diffuse, my good intent may carry through itself to that full issue. For which I raised my likeness, now banish Kent. If thou canst serve where thou dost stand condemned, so may it come thy master whom thou lovest shall find thee full of labors. And so they're right there at Albany's castle. He's actually really pretty pretty gutsy to even show up there, but he's disguised himself so that even Goneril doesn't even know him. But he's there because he wants to protect the king. And so in some ways you can see how absolutely loyal this man was. So so here's his horns. Uh, king Lear enters, the knights, all the attendants. Lear enters and he says, let me not stay a jot for dinner, so go get it ready. And if you really want to understand this, he says, look, I'm not waiting for dinner. Would you get it ready? I mean, that's basically what he's saying. He said, uh, look, I'm here. I'm the king. And remember, at the very beginning of the play, he says, I still want to have the title of king. And he says, the king is here. Where's the food? And then uh, the attendant says, how now? What art thou? And so he's looking at Kent, and he says, A man, sir, what dost thou profess? What would you with us? He says, I do profess to be no less than I seem, to serve him truly that will put me in trust, to love him that is honest, to converse with him that is wise, and says little, to fear judgment, to fight when I cannot choose, and to eat no fish. Now, <laughs> here we are in the Lenten season, and I think it's kind of unique that I can actually talk about this in the Lenten season, and I don't want to be, uh, I'm going to pass on some humor that, this is Shakespeare humor, this isn't Dennis Leap humor, but it's Shakespeare humor. Essentially, what he's saying there is, uh, if you're going to be manly, you're not going to eat fish. And it also is saying, you shouldn't want to be Catholic. <laughs> That's what he wanted saying. Because Catholics, you know, eat fish on Friday. I mean, I know I was raised one. That's a that's a little bit of a pun for uh, for Shakespeare to get in there, and I'm not sure why he put it in there, but it's in there, right in the middle of the play. And Lear says, "What art thou?" And he says, "A very honest, hard fellow, fellow, and as poor as the king." And so, so now he's jabbing the king there, and he says, "If you be," Lear says, "If you be as poor for a subject as he's for a king, thou art poor enough. What wouldst thou?" He said, service, who would you serve? You, does you not know me, fellow? Nurse, but you have that in your countenance which I would fain call master. What's that? Authority. So you can see that Kent is not only wanting to come back and help him, he's wanting him to see what he gave up. He gave up authority. He said, I see authority in you. He says, I see that you're a master. And, uh, he said, what's that? This is Lear. What's that? He said, authority. What services can thou do? And Kent says, I can keep honest counsel 
ride, run, mar a curious tale in telling it, and deliver a plain message bluntly. That which ordinary men are fit for I am qualified in, and the best of me is diligence. Well, what do you think of that? He said, look, I'm a diligent guy. You give me a job, I'm going to do it. And then Lear says, how old are you? <laughs> now, he's totally changed his appearance from what he, he was, and we see him at the beginning of the play. He says, not so young, sir, to love a woman for singing, and not so old to dote on her for anything. I have years on my back, 48. So he's 48 years old, you know. But I think it's, no. Shakespeare, what does he come up with these things? Uh, not so young, sir, that to love a woman for singing, <laughs> and not so old to dote on her for anything. And so, so uh, Shakespeare has his little jabs in there about a lot of things. And Lear says, follow me, you shall serve me. If I like thee no worse after dinner, I will not part from you yet. Dinner, oh, dinner, where's my knave, my fool? Go you and call my fool hither. So tenant exits, and then enters Oswald. And then Lear just goes after him. He says, you, you Sirrah, where's my daughter? <laughs> and so he says, so please you. Uh, Oswald is not going to go into his whole thing of how he's going to be totally arrogant and ignorant to the king. He says, what says the fellow there? Call the clot pole back. So the clot pole is a blockhead. <laughs> so, so here Lear is calling Oswald a blockhead. And uh, he doesn't even know his daughter's having an affair with the guy. And the knight says, where's my fool? Oh, I think the world's asleep. Enter knight. How now? Where's that mongrel? And the knight says, he says, my lord, your daughter is not well. Oswald's not even talking to the king. He's talking through a knight. And uh, Lear says, why came not the slave back to me when I called him? He says, sir, he answered me in the roundest manner. He would not. He would not. My lord, I know what the matter is, but to my judgment, your highness is not entertained with that ceremonious affection as you were wont. There's a great abatement of kindness appears as well in the general dependence as the duke himself also and your daughter. And so essentially what he says to him is, look, I'm a knight, I'm just a regular guy, but the ceremonious affection you want is gone. It's not going to come back. And uh, the daughter feels that way, her husband feels that way, and the steward feels that way. So it's just you're going to have to live with it. And Lear says, Hey, say thou so. Knight says, I beseech you, pardon me, my lord. If I be mistaken, for my duty cannot be silent when I think your highness wronged. And so here, even a knight can see what Lear can't see. Lear is blind to his own self. And essentially, Gloucester is blind to himself. All right. Well, that's all I have for today. Next time, we'll continue with Act 1. Remember now to make sure you get a uh, Shakespeare's King Lear, but uh, get the Pelican copy. And uh, you can buy good used copies of Shakespeare's plays at abebooks.com. That's a great source out of Canada. You may also be able to find copies in your local bookstore, and of course, you can also check your local library. And and don't forget about Amazon. You can uh, find uh, the Shakespeare Pelicans on Amazon as well. So please write me any comments you may have to uh, comments at kpcg.fm, and you can also comment at my Twitter page, Shakespeare's Royal Education. So please join me next time as we advance our royal education. 
You've been listening to Shakespeare's Royal Education on Trumpet Radio. 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.